today I would like to talk about some of my work with Joseph Madison Crowell and where his friendship with me has taken both of us. Joseph Madison Crowell's warrior name is Hybird. A member of the Crow Indian Nation, he died April 16, 2016 at the age of 102. We had been friends since 1972. When he adopted me some 30 years ago, he named me One Star, the name of his favorite grandfather. By any standard, Joe's personal story is remarkable. Raised by pre-reservation buffalo hunting grandparents, he was one of the first Crow boys to go to school, and he was the first Crow young man to graduate from college. And he would have received his Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Southern California had not World War II intervened. University of Southern California later awarded him an honorary doctorate. His grandfather, White Man Runzum, was one of the six Crow Scouts with Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Custer had six scouts, and Joe knew four of them. And he would be the interpreter when historians and journalists came to interview his grandfather about the events that transpired at Custer's last stand. During World War II, Joe performed his own war deeds against the Germans, consisting of four types of coup, including the capture of horses from a squad of SS soldiers. For his accomplishments on the battlefield, he was named a Crow War chief and given the name Highbird. He was the last of the line. President Obama awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honor, on August 12, 2009. Now, during our 30 years of friendship, Joe wrote me a number of letters, and I thought I'd share some of them with you now. So I'll start with the first one that I've pulled up. And so he wrote it in the spring of 2006. He was then 92. And he wrote to me, he said, Kahe, one star. Kahe is greetings or hello in the Crow language. Kahe, one star. The weather has been nice and warm this winter. Looking forward for the renewal of Mother Earth's beauty. For one month now, I have been besieged with asthma coughing. The old, reliable medicine men are gone, and so now I have to use the white man's medicine. And they have been treating me with all kinds of inhalants and pills. I'm getting better now. Otherwise, all is well. See you soon, Brother Hybrid. In October 2010, Joe wrote to me another letter. He was now 96. Kahe, kahe, just a few puffs of smoke talk. All is well here with yellow and red leaves fluttering in the breeze. Indian summer is here in full splendor. Once Sitting Bull said to his warriors, it is a good day to fight. Now I say it is a good day to live. I am looking forward to seeing you again. Joseph wrote to me in 2010. The letter is to one star from Highbird. Just a few puffs of smoke talk to say kahe. At 97 winters, I am fine. I am in good health, but not in good wealth. I am an FBI, flat broke Indian. Or I could say a fried bread Indian. I may be living to eat instead of eating to live. In my prime, I was limber all over except one place where it was always stiff. But now it is the other way. I still get around using a cane. I go to basketball games, to rodeos, to powwows. I still chase girls, but I don't catch them. You know me better 
than I know myself. I recall that a long time ago you and George Horse Capture were talking about writing about me, and I said, why me? I am just a reservation Indian, while there are some more famous, more interesting Indians like Billy Mills, Chief Dan George, Tonto. George Horse Capture replied, but you are more interesting. Puff some smokes the talks this way and tell me about your activities, openly or otherwise. I miss you, so come this way soon, maybe at Crow Fair time. Kalak, again, the Awak Kawak, you I will see. Another letter, October 25, 2013, time of the falling leaves. From one star to high bird, the subject is few puffs of smoke talk. On the 27th day of the moon, I will have seen 100 snows. When I was born on October 27, 1913, there were no doctors or nurses around with their instruments, just a medicine woman who specialized in child delivery. With incense of burning cedar and the singing of sacred songs, I came into the world. I was singing too but they probably thought I was wailing. I was kicking up my heels, and I made a lot of yells. They thought I was crying, but I was merely singing powwow songs. Since that day, snows have stooped my frame. Smoke from evening fires have dimmed my sight. The chewing of lots of buffalo jerky has worn out my teeth. West winds have blown against my head but have not blown my brains away. And I recall a lot of things, some good, some bad, some funny, some sad. Chased girls, but I don't catch them because they are faster. I scare them, maybe. The beating of many powwow songs has strained my ears. The dancings around the arbor have slackened my pace. Right now, I am in good shape physically, mentally, and morally but not financially. I still go to powwows. When I feel good, I dance. And when I still feel good, I chase girls. But what would happen if I catch one? I feel young and even think handsome, as the girls used to call me. I thank the first maker for giving me health and sometimes wealth. Aho, aho. Now, Joseph wrote me this letter September 25th, 2014, before he turned 101. Again, Smoke talk. Many snows upon my shoulders have stooped me. Smoke from many campfires have dimmed my eyes. Drums from many powwows have hurt my ears. Chewing hard jerky has worn my teeth. Smells of all kinds of things have hurt my nose. I still chase girls, but I don't want to catch them. I just want to scare them. I wonder if I want to live or live to want to. I still enjoy life. And I pray for you all the time, and I hope to see you soon. So those are some of the letters that Joseph wrote to me. As you can tell, we always talk to each other, and he calls me High Bird, and I always talk to him as One Star. And he's been extremely important in my life. I met him in 1972 when he came to the Anthropology Archives to do research on Crow people. And he was... Actually, the fraternity brother of my boss at the time, Cliff Evans, who was chairman of the anthropology department. I had just started my job there. I'd been at the National Archives before that for several years. I had just gotten this new job at the Museum of Natural History, and Cliff Evans called me up and said, you got to do me a favor. My fraternity brother has showed up unexpectedly. I'm tied up. I can't spend time with him, so he'll come down to the archives. And I said, Cliff, what am I going to do with him? 
he says, oh, I forgot to tell you, show him pictures of the Crow tribe. That's what he's really interested in. So Joe showed up in my office, cowboy boots, cowboy hat, and I said, uh, you want to see some pictures of the Crow people? He said, yes. And he didn't smile. He was pretty stern-faced. And so I set him down, and we, we had about 600 pictures of Crow Indians. And so he was starting to go through them, and each picture had an identification on the back. And, of course, here I was, new on the job, wanting to impress my boss, didn't want to offend his fraternity brother. And I was a little concerned about how this was going to work. So every once in a while, I'd walk through the search room and see him, and I'd say, how's it coming? He says, everything's fine. I'm looking at pictures. And so I went by him again one time, and he was looking at this picture very seriously. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, it's this picture. It can't exist. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's my mother and father. And it was a picture of a man and woman with a little boy in it. And he said, I have no idea when this picture was taken. And I said, well, let's look. Well, it was taken like 1927, and it was taken at a, a rodeo in D.C. And Joe said, oh, he said, I remember the crows came to D.C. to be in the rodeo, and my parents came and my little brother, but I stayed home. I wanted to hunt. I didn't want to go on a trip. So he said, my mother has never seen this picture. And I said, your mother is still alive? Oh, yes. And he said, and the little boy in the picture, he died. Oh, I said, well, I'll be glad to make a picture for your mother. Then I'll make a big reproduction. And he said, that would be very nice. And so Joe left. And I had a large blow-up made of the picture. And as it turned out, a couple weeks later, the Smithsonian sent me to the Crow Reservation on a trip. So I brought the picture along, and I got to the Crow Reservation, and then Joe was so excited to see the picture, and he brought me to meet his mother, and she was very pleased to see the picture, and so that was the beginning of this friendship with Joseph, and it lasted all these many, many years. And of course, he was so important in many ways. He was the first Crow to go to college. He actually later became officially the historian of the Crow tribe, and he had spent his youth collecting stories, and I was an archivist myself, and so we kind of had a lot in common. And so he started telling me stories. We first started talking about the Battle of the Little Bighorn because his grandfather, White Man Runzum, was one of the scouts with Custer. Anyhow, he was telling me stories that no one had ever recorded before. And we would sit down, have coffee and chat, and I'd listen to these stories, and they were just remarkable. For example, Custer had six Crow scouts with him. They were young teenagers. White Man Runzum was his favorite scout. And Joe lived for a time as the... In, with the, in the home of his grandpa. And, of course, Joe could speak English very well. And so when newspaper people came to interview his grandfather about what happened to Little Bighorn, you know, Joe would be the interpreter. And his, he said to me many times how his grandfather would get angry because he said, these white people don't want to know the truth. I tell them what happened, and they don't believe me. I don't want to talk to these white people anymore. So anyhow, one of the stories that his grandfather told him was why those boys survived the battle. As you know your history, the Custer lost a good portion of the soldiers with him, the 7th Cavalry, and these scouts were his personal scouts, so they were really attached to him. And so on June 25th, when the big battle occurred, the the boys, their job had been to find Sitting Bull's village. They kind of had a good idea where it was, and so they set of hills 
near the Little Bighorn River, and they went up to the top of the hill, had a white soldier with them, and they said they could look down over the prairie, and they said it was a huge village, and it was gone, and the smoke was starting to rise from the teepees where they were making their breakfast. Earth was just dark with horses. It was believed there was something like 5,000 horses there at that village. And it was believed to be about the size of the city of San Francisco at that time. But the boy's soldier with them couldn't t- see it. Even had he had something that he looked at with his eyes, and obviously a telescope, he said, I don't see anything. And the boys said, well, they're out there. So they went back down the hill and reported to Custer and said, uh, found the village. It's up there. Custer said, okay, it's time to go after them. So he called his officers together to plan the attack. And of course, the boys were nearby and they were startled to see Custer planning to attack the Sitting Bull's village. And they had said, you know, there are more Indians in that village than there are bullets in your guns. And so their advice was to wait for the infantry. There was a large column of foot soldiers coming, and Plains Indians had no trouble fighting soldiers on horseback, but they were terrified of the foot soldiers. And Mitch Boyer was the chief of scouts. He could speak Crow. He was white. Boys were very perplexed about what was going on, and so as Custer was talking to his officers... The boys started taking their uniforms off. They were enlisted in the army, and they started putting on their Indian clothing. And Custer noticed this, and he said to Mitch Boyer, why are those boys taking off their uniforms? Boyer said, well, I'll ask them. And he went over to the six boys, and he said, hey, Yellowhair wants to know why you're taking your uniforms off. And White Swan, one of the boys, pointed to Custer and said, he is a crazy man, and today we are all going to walk a road we never walked before, and when we meet the one above, we want him to know we're Indians, not white people. So in other words, the boys were predicting they were all going to get killed. So Mitch Boyer went back and told that to Custer. Custer, of course, very tense, very upset. He said, I don't want that defeatist attitude around my men. Tell them to leave, and if they're afraid to fight the Sioux, we'll do the fighting for them. So Mitch came back to the boys, said, this is your lucky day. You can leave. And the boys left. Now, Joe said he heard that story from his grandfather and from one of the other scouts as well. And so it was these kind of stories that Joe told me that got me interested in collecting the stories of Indians in the military. And the next big factor in that interest of mine was Ben Nighthorse Campbell. I had written a book called Diplomats and Buckskins, which was the history of Indian visitors to Washington, D.C. And someone had given Campbell a copy of the book. And I'm sitting at my desk at the Smithsonian one day, and the phone rings, and it's Campbell. And he was in the House of Representatives at the time. Anytime you're in government and a congressman calls you, you pay attention. So anyhow, he said, Dr. Viola, he said, this is Ben Nighthorse Campbell. He said, I'd like to meet you. And I said, well, what would you like to do? And he said, well, why don't you come over and have lunch? We'll chat. So I knew he had the book, and I thought, oh, he's going to want some free copies of my book. But anyhow, I figured I'd better go. So he said, I'll have my assistant call you. You set up lunch, and we'll meet. So a few days later, I'm up on Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives cafeteria. And so it's a buffet set up, and we got our food and sat down. And so as we're sitting there making small talk, Campbell says to me, you want to know why I called you and asked you for lunch? And I said, yeah, I have been rather curious about that. 
He said, well, I'd like you to write my biography. He said, I've checked you out with Indian people, and you're very trustworthy, and so I need my biography written, and I'd like you to do it. And I was just shocked. And first of all, you know, I've written a few books, but you, do, you write books because you want to. And the last thing I wanted to do was write a book about someone I knew nothing about. I did know Campbell was running for the Senate. And so I figured he wanted some sort of potboiler book that he could use on the campaign trail. So I started to stammer a little bit. And I said, oh, sir, this is such an honor. But there are so many people out there who would love to write your book. And I think they would do a better job than I could. And he looked at me and he says, that's right. He said, you don't know a thing about me. He said, I'll tell you what, you eat and I'll talk. And so there I was eating my lunch and he started telling me his life story. He talked for about a half hour. And finally, when he finished, I said, all right, we've got a deal. I said, but if I write your biography, whatever I find out has to go into it. I said, warts and all. And he says, don't worry, there aren't any secrets. He said, I want you to know I've been arrested a couple of times as a teenager. He said, whatever you find out, you know, you can put it in the book. And so I worked with Campbell for about two years on that biography. I got to meet a number of his friends. He was on a judo team for the Olympics in Japan. I met some of his high school classmates. I met people he worked with, and I learned a lot about him. One of the things I learned about was that he'd been married three times. Now, he had admitted he was married twice. The first wife was just a short-term marriage. Then he's now married to Linda. They've been married most of the time. But there was another woman that his judo play partners told me about. And I can't remember her name, but let's say her name was Linda. So I would meet with Campbell every Wednesday about 4 o'clock in his office and tell him what I had found out during the uh, previous week. And so then one day I said to him, well, sir, I said... Everything seems to be going very well, but you've never told me about Linda. And he looked at me and says, what do you mean, Linda? I said, well, I understand you were married to Linda. She's your second wife. And he said, well, that's true, but you can't put that in the book. And I said, why not? He said, because my current wife doesn't know about Linda. And it was only a short marriage. Didn't last long at all. And I said, well, was it a legal marriage? He says, well, yeah, yeah, we did the legal thing. So I said, you're running for the Senate. And I found this out so easily. And you're going to think that you're going to keep that a secret when you're all these people snooping around about your life. And I said, it has to go in the book. And he says, well... I'll have to think about that. So a few days later, he called me up and he said, okay, you can put it in the book. He says, I told Linda. <laughs> and Linda to this day is very grateful to me, very pleased to know me. And even Campbell today is very pleased about it because he often still goes around on the lecture circuit. He's in his mid-80s now. And he often tells the story about how this fellow that wrote his biography revealed his second marriage, but it was the smartest thing that ever happened because that made everything come together very nicely. So there you have it. Now, in my work with Campbell for these two years, he knew about the stories I'd been collecting from Joe Medicine Crow and other stories about Indian history. And, and Campbell himself had been a soldier in the Korean War. And I was listening to his stories about being an Indian in Korea. And one day he said to me, you know, he said, your next book ought to be about Indians in the army. And I thought about it and I said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And so it was that inspiration that then encouraged me to go ahead and do a book on the history of Indians in the military. And the book is called Warriors in Uniform. It was published in 2008 by the National Geographic. And 
Campbell wrote the introduction to the book, and the book had really a uh, part at play in helping now. Congress has asked the Museum of the American Indian to build a memorial on the Mall for American Indian veterans, and Campbell is the chairman of the committee that is advising on that project, and I'm the senior advisor to that project. And in my next podcast, I can tell you more about the memorial and what's coming of it. It's going to be dedicated on Veterans Day 2020. I look forward to chatting with you some more about this. Thank you.